0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're facing the possible sunset of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and we'll refer to it as FISA. As most listeners are aware... This is the section that allows U.S. intelligence agencies to do surveillance on foreigners located overseas who are using American telephone or Internet platforms. This could have massive ramifications for national security, given the global nature of communications and the interconnectivity of nations. But over the summer and continuing into the fall, reports by government commissions and civil liberties groups alike have highlighted the importance of 702, as well as criticisms of its execution in practice. And there have been proposals for reform. Thanks in part to a months-long education of Congress, which was uh, undertaken by the administration, there appears to be a wider consensus among some of the 702 players than is often reported. And that consensus is around the fact that 702 is an important intelligence collection tool and that it should not be lost. It's clear that Section 702 has played a useful role in everything from assisting Ukraine and its war with Russia to thwarting ransomware and other cybersecurity attacks to stopping shipments of fentanyl. So it's fair to say that a majority of Congress would now concede that 702 should be reauthorized, at least for several years. What's holding that up is a lack of agreement between both parties and both chambers of Congress over the scope of amendments that should be made to the 702 program. That lack of agreement results from differences of opinion on how much the statute needs to protect Americans' privacy rights and whether there's a trade off with national security. Not only will both chambers of Congress, of course, have to agree to any legislation, but in each chamber, there are competing approaches that will have to be resolved. In the Senate, Senator Ron Wyden and others have proposed a new privacy oriented bill that would amend 702, somewhat along the lines of the recent report by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board, or PCLOB, an agency that was created after the 9 11 Review Commission's report on al Qaeda's attacks of 2001. Then several weeks ago, Senator Warner, the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, or SISI, and 14 bipartisan co sponsors introduced their bill to reauthorize Section 702 with a decidedly different set of amendments. Those amendments are more in line with the wishes of the intelligence community. Now, this pattern has been replicated in the House, where there are similarly dueling versions of reauthorization, one reported out by the Judiciary Committee and the other by the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And the House is about to decide which of these two versions it wants to send over to the Senate. Now, how is Congress currently approaching this debate? What are the people who have dealt with 702 in their capacity as national security lawyers saying about all of this? My guests tonight are two of the most important attorneys in the practice of national security law, and they have both had to wrestle with the broader and finer aspects of this legal tool considered so vital to national security. Glenn Gerstle is the former general counsel of the National Security Agency, or the NSA, and Adam Hickey is the former deputy assistant attorney general for national security at the U.S. Department of Justice. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming in. I'm glad that you did.
0: Thanks for having me. And the same for me. Delighted to be back.
1: Glenn, you were heavily involved in the last congressional reauthorization debate in 2017 and 2018, feels like yesterday. And that was while you were at the NSA. Can you briefly set the stage for our listeners? What does 702 cover? And why has reauthorization been so contentious?
0: So, to set the stage for 702, we sort of have to go back a little bit to the origins of FISA. It's a 45 year old statute that was put in place following abuses that were uncovered in the intelligence and law enforcement area by the so called Church Pike hearings. And Congress set up a rather detailed scheme for undertaking foreign intelligence surveillance within the bounds of the Fourth Amendment. And that was a carefully crafted series of compromises and technical statutes that were set up under FISA in 1978. Not surprisingly, technology evolved to the point where after 9-11, we were focusing on different targets who were using different means of communication than had been originally the case when FISA was first adopted. Because at the time, most international phone calls were carried by satellite. But of course, by the 2000s, that had turned around and Foreign phone calls were being conducted by subsea and terrestrial cables, and a massive amount of communication was, of course, handled by the internet with email not even existing at the time of FISA. So the law was changed in 2008 to adopt Section 702. At the time, it was it was a little bit uh, contentious, to be sure. I mean, every time it's been renewed again in 2012 and again in 2018 and 17, as you described, there's always been some controversy over it. We'll talk about why that's the case. But what 702 does is pretty simple. It's a foreign intelligence surveillance program that is aimed at foreigners located overseas for the purpose of collecting foreign intelligence information. And the reason it works is in some ways a testament to American technology, which is to say that the world communicates through American platforms, internet platforms, and telephone platforms. And the result... Is that the American intelligence community is able to go to these providers of of internet uh, services and telecommunication services, and under the compelled orders issued by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which was the court that was set up under the FISA statute originally, require those providers to hand over information, emails, telephone calls, other communications from the targets, from the foreign targets. And that's, as I said, it's a function of the fact that both the good guys and the bad guys communicate using American platform. The reason this is all controversial, going back to the original adoption of FISA, is that inevitably when foreigners are talking to each other, they might also either be mentioning an American or they might be talking to an American. So inevitably, although it's not intended and not the goal of 702, uh, inevitably it's the case that some Americans' communications are picked up when the intelligence community is focused on foreigners. And that's the cause of the concern.
1: All right. Adam, what are your thoughts about where we are presently?
2: Well,
0: if you look at prior debates over
2: renewal, I think there was a greater focus on the intelligence community's outward collection, certainly in the in the years post-Edward Snowden's disclosures. One thing to keep in mind as we talk about 702 is a lot of the energy behind efforts to change or not renew 702 comes from, I think, skepticism about law enforcement and the FBI in particular, and concerns that have been expressed about a limited number of what I'll call Title I FISA, so different authority from the one we're discussing tonight. But ultimately, I think we have to keep in mind the political realities that animate those concerns, and it won't be enough to respond directly and only to concerns about 702.
1: This begs the question, of course, of what's left if 702 is not available. What is the alternative, if any, authority that the intelligence community can rely upon if for some reason the statutory authority under 702 is lapses in a dysfunctional
0: Congress? Well, as I said, one of the reasons 702 works is because it reflects the fact that the world communicates via American communications platforms. So that means that if the intelligence community needs to access that information on, in a compelled way, in a manner consistent with the Fourth Amendment from an American communications platform, a internet provider, or a telephone company, it needs a court order. And if it doesn't, and the way it gets that court order is pursuant to the authorities contained in Section 702. There's no substitute for it. The only other way to obtain that kind of information is through the law enforcement process of a criminal warrant, but that's not relevant here. We're talking about obtaining information for foreign intelligence purposes. And FISA is the exclusive means for doing that. So if we don't have Section 702, it is not possible for the government to have other legal basis in the United States for doing the same thing. Overseas, we could probably get similar information, but not completely, just pursuant to the general authorities of the commander in chief as enunciated in something called Executive Order 12333, which Govern sort of overseas activities that aren't covered by the Fourth Amendment. But that's not going to fully answer this because the, as I said, the fact of the matter is that communications via American platforms are so relevant. ISIS terrorists use American platforms. They use WhatsApp, Google, YouTube, whatever. So do Russian agents. So do Chinese spies. So do fentanyl traffickers. And that's the issue that we need, need to be concerned about.
1: Adam, I think a lot of the focus of these reports has been this concept of incidental collection. And civil libertarians have taken the position that it could be a backdoor for targeting a U.S. person. And then that's a phrasing that the backdoor is what they're calling. They even analogize into incidental collection to something that has become very controversial, which is the wiretapping of Martin Luther King. Those wiretaps, of course, having been authorized directly by Robert Kennedy during his tenure as attorney general. If you could explain what incidental collection is, and what are the current rules when it comes to intercepting and reviewing communications of U.S. persons?
2: As Glenn said, if you imagine targeting a foreign spy's email account under 702, you're going to get all of the communications to and from that person through that email account. And that may include some communications with U.S. persons. That's incidental collection because the US person's communications are not themselves what's being targeted. Their collection is incidental to the targeting of the foreign person. Part of the protections that exist under the law as it stands now is that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Corps, or FISC, has to approve procedures designed to minimize the acquisition, retention, and prohibit the dissemination of non-public information about US persons that's irrelevant to foreign intelligence purposes of the surveillance. So keep in mind, if there's a what I call a wholly innocent or private communication that has no intelligence value, there are already systems built in to anonymize or mask that. Section 0702 would be a very inefficient and ineffective way to target a U.S. person because you can't use it to task a U.S. person's account. And if you look at the auditing that's been done of whether the IC is correctly targeting foreigners, you will see, even in the PCLOB report, a virtually perfect record of using Section 702 to target foreigners. I think the compliance rate is above 99%. So clearly, 702 is not being used to target Americans, nor is there evidence it's being used to target foreigners for the purpose of getting communications with Americans. But let's pause for a moment on whether you might very much want the government to analyze and think about and collect communications between US persons and foreign 702 targets. Here's why. 702 can't be used to collect on random foreigners. There needs to be a basis to believe that the tasking of each particular selector qualifies under 702 for collection. For example, that there's an expectation you'll get some counterintelligence or counterterrorism value. So let's imagine three categories of foreigners you might target under 702, spies, hackers, and terrorists. It's possible that you'll collect the communications of U.S. persons under 702, but only their communications with spies, terrorists, and hackers. The vast, vast majority of Americans obviously have no contact with spies, hackers, and terrorists. Your emails to that cute Airbnb in Amsterdam or the tailor in Italy or the French vineyard where you get your wine, these are very unlikely to end up collected via 702 simply because it's less intuitive that bed and breakfasts, tailors and vineyards are of counterintelligence value. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. But for the U.S. persons who are in contact with spies, hackers and terrorists, imagine that some of them are victims or at least unwitting of who they're talking to. And some perhaps are acting intentionally. So in crafting 702 reforms, keep your eye on those three classes of US persons in touch with those foreign targets, the people who are acting intentionally, the US persons who are unwitting of who they're talking to, and the victims who don't even know that they're in touch with them or who they are. And when and how you want the FBI to be able to access those communications, those are US person queries. And that is where the rub lies in 702 reauthorization.
1: That answers the question very well of why we would need queries of U.S. persons and why we would need queries for criminal investigative purposes. But is there anything you want to add to that, either one of you?
2: Well, I think the debate about U.S. person queries assumes that there are means for the FBI to gather derogatory information about Americans. And I think that gets it totally wrong. If you listen to the Bureau talk about why queries are important, It's because you don't know why someone is in touch with the mere fact of why they're in touch with a spy, terrorist, or hacker. Are they a victim? Are they winning? Are they in touch with others? Or is it an accident or innocent communication? Running a U.S. person through these communications is a beginning step of deciding whether to focus on them or not. It's not a replacement for targeting them with a FISA or getting a court order. It is like any other database check the FBI might do, open source records check, perhaps a credit check, perhaps other FBI databases, travel records, to develop a picture of why this U.S. person is in touch with a foreign spy, terrorist, or hacker.
0: Adam's got it exactly right, and I would just add a couple of points. One is that in some cases, what's important And the reason one might undertake a query or a search is not necessarily to get the direct communication of an American with the spy, the hacker, the terrorist that Adam's been talking about, but just to see who the foreigners are talking about. So let me give you a good example. Let's assume that there's a Russian ransomware gang that is busy attacking American hospitals. And the FBI wants to find out whether additional hospitals in the same city are on the hit list, on the target list. So wouldn't it be completely appropriate to look through the collection of the information from the Russian ransomware gang? Let's say the Russian ransomware gang's chief sending a message out to all his or her deputies saying, here are the six hospitals we can go after. No American communications are involved, but putting the name of an American hospital into the search box there and having and typing in and pressing enter to see whether the name pops up on the Russian communications is going to be the a great example of how a query could be relevant, again, within proper guidelines that Adam just described, et cetera. But no American communication is involved there. There's no privacy interest of an American, I would submit that is is meaningful in this in the context here. But that's going to be really valuable information for the FBI to be able to go to one of those hospitals saying, We just found that you're on their hit list. That would be really powerful. And the the second thing is to understand a little bit about exactly what we're talking about when we talk about queries. Adam mentioned this, but just to belabor it a little bit. This is essentially searching for already collected information. And let me explain what I mean by that, which is I don't think there's any doubt or any controversy about the fact that the FBI, along with three other agencies, the NSA, the CIA, and the National Counterterrorism Center, are entitled, legally entitled to get the information that's collected under Section 702. And in theory, they could stand there, so to speak, and just watch each email as it came in and read it right there in real time, so to speak. There'd be no constitutional issue. The information is legally collected. And the vast majority of times, if someone were, as I said, in this little metaphorical example, standing there watching this, the vast majority of these communications would be from a foreigner to a foreigner. Every now and then, there'd be some clearly that does include either a reference to an American or with an American, but it could be viewed at that time. So the process of digitizing that information, putting it into a computer, and then running a search on it the same way you might search in your inbox to see emails from your friend Bob is exactly what's involved here. So it's pulling up information, that you could have looked at in the first place had you wanted to wade through every single one of them. And that's the process we're talking about.
1: Assuming that the queries of already collected data are obviously for the examples that you provide, it makes it very plain. Anyone with common sense can understand the utility of these queries to protect hospitals from being brought to a standstill and unable to care for patients. Human life is at issue. You didn't mention anything vis-a-vis any power company, anything that might collapse the availability of a natural resource necessary to the sustaining of human life. But assuming for the moment that you're tasking what has already been collected, why has the FISC taken the bureau to task for several years and running over their failure to comply with their own rules? I mean, it would be difficult to avoid this question in any sort of fulsome discussion of where we are with this legislation.
2: So there is a an off cited statistic that the FBI made more than two hundred seventy eight thousand non compliant queries of raw FISA. And that statistic comes from an April 2022 opinion by the FISC. It's worth understanding, though, what that refers to. It's a reference to improper U.S. person queries. But part of what's happening or was happening in the FBI systems is a function of what I'll call bad web form design, meaning that when the FBI ran a check in its system, you literally check the box about which databases you check and which ones you don't and you had to opt out of checking 702. So unless the analyst or the agent unchecked 702, they would run a 702 query and potentially not even intend to, and without perhaps the right threshold or standard of being reasonably likely to return something of intelligence, foreign intelligence value. Uh, It was also the case that the FBI would run batch queries. So a list of different U.S. persons who are related in some way by an event, and that would be a a hundred or a thousand queries at once, uh, even though in some sense they're running one search. I think it's important to make two points in the FBI's defense, although I will also acknowledge that if there are rules in place, you properly expect the FBI to follow them. One, though, is that after the Fort Hood shooting, there was a recommendation by the Webster Commission that the FBI search FISA by default to enable it to better connect the dots between U.S. persons and foreigners. So the FBI a little bit is whipsawed here between trying to catch and prevent everything bad from happening and not searching its holdings, which you know if something bad did happen and it hadn't searched FISA there would be headlines about how the FBI had missed it. So I think what you're seeing is a motivation by a law enforcement intelligence agency not to miss something, not to fail to connect the dots. The other point I think is worth making is that the FBI is concerned with preventing things. And I can imagine people acting in good faith, uh, running a query through 702, not because they expect to find a US person hit there, but because if they did, it would be very, very meaningful. I think that kind of prophylactic or preventative search is what led the FBI to run the names of January 6 defendants and Black Lives Matter protesters through 702. It's not that they necessarily expected to return foreign intelligence, but if those names hit in communications with foreigners, that could be very probative and very meaningful in exposing foreign influence in either of those events. The problem is that the standard that the FISC and DOJ have adopted is that you actually have to have a likelihood of having a hit or a reasonable likelihood. And so you can't run someone's name through 702 just in case or just to confirm they're not there. You have to be able to articulate some basis for thinking they will be found there. That's an error, and that's part of what led to the 278,000. But since then, the FBI has made a number of changes, right? So it's changed the checkbox, so you have to opt in to FISA. And just doing that and some other tweaks led the number of US person queries to drop from 3 million in 2021 to 119,000. So if your concern is overuse or o- overchecking of 702, that simple web form design made a huge difference. I think another point worth making is that the vast majority of searches in 702 for US persons don't return a result, they come up empty, which I think if we're concerned with the privacy of Americans' communications is a fact worth noting. It's not as if this is a dragnet or backdoor, as some have said, that's sweeping up voluminous American communications that the FBI is then surreptitiously searching and finding. In fact, most of the time, even when they have a reasonable expectation that they might have a hit, they don't have one.
1: Let's move forward here. There are two bills right now, or two, like maybe four versions of bills in Congress. What is the current state of play on the Hill? And what are the major contentions and contenders at this point? Can you bring us up to date on the pending legislation? And if you have any predictions, prognostications, we always welcome those as well.
0: Thank you. Well, I'm going to say right now that I'm not going to engage in any predictions because that would be a a fool's errand. It's hard enough as it is to figure out what the situation is at the moment, let alone to make predictions about it. But let's try to figure out where we are at the moment. Interestingly enough, there are bipartisan agreements in both the House and Senate on different approaches. So this is not a pure Republican versus Democratic issue. Uh, More specifically, in the Senate, Senator Wyden and a number of other co sponsors have introduced some legislation following on a little bit from an earlier bill, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. The Wyden bill is a privacy oriented bill that would eliminate the ability to undertake these United States person queries that we've been talking about, unless certain exceptions were available, such as there was already a criminal warrant or the person consented, et cetera. So there's a lot of tightening up there. There are Tightening up provisions of making sure that the queries are done for the sole purpose of finding foreign intelligence. There's limits on getting warrants to determine geolocation and web browsing history. There's also an expanded section on in there in Senator Wyden's bill that would prohibit law enforcement from buying certain kinds of personal data from data brokers, something that's been the subject of proposed privacy legislation for a long time. There's also a provision in there that bars or limits the use of stingrays, so-called cell site simulators uh, in the United States, provisions dealing with collecting information from vehicles, even some provisions addressing uh, queries undertaken under Executive Order 12333 regarding foreign intelligence collection. So It's a very broad bill that I would say meets almost all the suggestions of the privacy advocates, and there are both Republican and Democratic sponsors on it. Also in the Senate, Senators Warner and Rubio from the Select Committee on Intelligence have their bill, which would reauthorize FISA with some, but not all of these privacy provisions, most notably eliminating the requirement for a warrant in order to do queries, but also containing very strong provisions that would uh, further impose restrictions on the FBI and improve transparency of the FISA court and take some other steps. That's mirrored in the House. In the Senate, I think the odds are, if you ask me to make some predictions, I think there's a f- little bit more support for Senators Warner and Rubio's bill. That's not the case in the House where there's a mirror images. There's a bill from the Chairman Jordan's Judiciary Committee, which is very close to the Wyden bill that I just described with significant privacy protections and in some ways goes even further. And there's also a bill from the intelligence community on the House that is very similar to the bill on the Senate side. And again, both of those have bipartisan supporters. It's unclear right now, perhaps by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have a little better sense of what exactly is happening procedurally, but all of this is going to need to get resolved between the two houses in the form of a conference.
1: I do wonder, listening to you, Glenn, that some of this effort sort of reach into authorities under 12333 doesn't walk into separation of powers issues between Article 1 and Article 2. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But let's take a moment to go deeper in the so-called warrant requirement, since that appears to be the main distinction between some of these approaches. Glenn, let's start with you. Is a warrant actually constitutionally required, as some people have claimed or perhaps would like to believe?
0: A warrant for undertaking queries. I think the answer to that is that there is, and I think that's a pretty clear answer, which is there is no constitutional requirement to get a warrant. We do not, in other areas of federal government, we do not generally have a requirement that in order for the government to go look at information it's already lawfully collected, it needs a warrant. So, Just think, for example, when you show up at the airport and hand your passport or driver's license to the TSA agent who then plugs your name in a computer of lawfully acquired information, no warrant is needed to do that kind of search. The courts that have looked at this, and admittedly there haven't been very many, have said that the Constitution does not require a warrant to undertake the query. The courts that are most concerned about this, that have the most expertise and have the deepest appreciation of the circumstances in which these queries would be undertaken, are, of course, the judges under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court on at least 3 occasions perhaps 4 in 2015 2018 again in 2023 after asking amicus to be appointed to specifically brief this issue they have reached the conclusion that it, there is no constitutional requirement for a warrant in the context of doing these queries there that is completely constitutional the few district courts that have looked at this most notably the District Court in Portland in the Muhammad case, that was the Christmas tree bomb plot, you may recall, specifically looked at that and said, uh, again, no warrant is requirement. The only thing on the other side of the ledger, and it's important, I'll be fair about that, is a Second Circuit opinion. Uh, It is a court of appeals opinion, which not in a direct holding, said it may well be a separate event that we need to look at for constitutional purposes. And maybe, I underscore maybe, there's a requirement for a warrant, but it didn't say there was. And there is even some language in the opinion that suggests that when the FBI is doing a query, maybe there is no such requirement. But it referred the matter back to the district court, so there's no definitive holding on it. And about the most you could say is that there have been a handful of courts that have addressed the issue. None have found there's a constitutional requirement. And uh, admittedly, the Supreme Court has not definitively addressed this, and it may never have occasion to.
1: But Adam, from the FBI standpoint, what would happen if there was a requirement for a warrant or consent? What would that look like?
2: It would look very bad. So remember that the fact that there's a U.S. person in touch with a foreign 702 target is troubling, but it's not necessarily incriminating. You don't know whether the email traffic that you see between the U.S. company and, say, a foreigner... Is spear phishing messages designed to target them and allow you to hack into them or communications of exfil from their network or being a co-conspirator in a foreign influence operation or the like, right? Or maybe someone just has an uncle abroad who's in the a foreign intelligence service and just emails them about their trip. You do not have probable cause to get a warrant on a US person merely because they show up in the database as in touch with a foreign 702 target. You could not truthfully allege there's probable cause, based on that alone, I don't think, in most cases, to surveil them. And what the Judiciary Bill and Wyden Bill both do is create that as the standard for a U.S. person query, that I need to be able to justify getting a search warrant or a wiretap or a FISA order on the U.S. person, and that it is not appropriate. And because you've set that as the requirement, I will now not be able to warn the U.S. person, if they're being targeted for, say, an influence operation, I won't even be able to figure out whether they are the unwitting target or if they're a co-conspirator in some effort to, I don't know, infiltrate a political party or alter an elections results or engage in some kind of covert influence campaign. Briefly put, the tool does not match even the complaint that you hear on the Hill. If your complaint is... The FBI is not following the rules and it's running too many US person queries that it cannot justify. And in fact, that is what the FISC found last year. There are ways to address that. You could have a two-person rule to make sure that every query is specifically documented and has some higher level of approval within the FBI. Which, by the
0: way, is what, if I can interrupt Adam, which is exactly what happens at the National Security Agency
2: you could, and this is, I think, one of the mechanisms that's been instituted pre-approval for batch queries or politically sensitive queries, right? There are stories about how particular congressmen or their donors' names were run. And that's one of those face-pull moments where you think, if only the agent had consulted with a lawyer in OGC or someone at NSD, that probably wouldn't have happened. But there are ways to built in further oversight that will limit improper querying short of walling 702 off from the Bureau, which is really what you're doing. And I'll make a final point. We know about the FBI's errors because of the extensive oversight that NSD and DOJ does and because of their obligations to report to the FISC and Congress. So while I would prefer to live in a world where the FBI followed all the rules to date perfectly, we know about the problems because we have robust oversight, which I think is a sign of sorts of success. And you should tailor the amendments of 702 to address the problems that have been surfaced by oversight, like bad web design, a lack of training, insufficient coordination with OGC, or insufficient supervision of queries. All of those things you can address short of misconceiving of why you would run a US person query.
1: And I think the last thing to state there is what you didn't say, but I think most listeners on this podcast would understand that warrants have to be based on a standard of probable cause, meaning more likely than not to return and, evidence. Which well, I, don't, I actually, as
2: a prosecutor, I don't know I would agree with that, <laughs> but I would say <laughs> certainly, certainly a, a reasonable person would think there's a probability. But as written in the judiciary bill, I think you can only read that be a reasonable probability or probable cause that they are an agent of a foreign power or that they are a criminal. What do you do about the victims? What do you do about the unwitting subject of an influence operation? If you're gonna have a requirement to go to a judge, at least set the right standard for what you have to show to the judge. And it can't just be implicitly copied and pasted from the existing surveillance statutes you have, because what you're really asking the court to do is check the FBI's, sort of logic for thinking they want to, you know, that this person might be an unwitting influenced target or the like, right? That there's no existing legal standard for them to plead the right warrant.
1: Glenn, you wanted to add something there?
0: I did. Adam articulated it very clearly. But one of the, or maybe some of the concerns in addition, are the sheer logistics of this. Uh, in order to obtain a probable cause warrant, whatever the standard is, whether it's showing that there's someone is an agent of a foreign power or whatever, is quite a process. Uh, An agent has to swear out a a sworn affidavit, um, has to be reviewed internally. Uh, By the time it goes through all the checks and gets into the court and the court considers it, even on an expedited basis, you're talking a minimum of a handful of days and perhaps even longer. So that's not going to work when you're hot on the tail of a Chinese espionage agent trying to recruit a defense contractor or a ransomware gang that's operating within a matter of hours to take down a hospital or other infrastructure. Just the sheer logistics of it and the workload imposed on the FISC to deal with a warrant requirement for every one of these queries is going to have a very, very significant effect on curtailing the number of queries we do. And Again, as Adam said, there's a darn good reason we do these queries. Again, that doesn't excuse ones that are done inappropriately. I'm not suggesting that in the slightest, but we do need to have an effective, robust way of undertaking the kinds of queries that are going to be necessary to keep America safe.
1: Well, based on your sort of collective years of inhabiting the national security ecosystem and understanding all of these threats, And Adams mentioned some of the guardrails that would suffice to protect the rights of U.S. persons without leaving Americans otherwise vulnerable. I'd like to get your thoughts a little bit more granularly about what these guardrails should look like. In addition to the obvious design flaws in software that require an opt-out versus an opt-in and things that are forehead-slapping sort of uh, realizations, what are your thoughts about what would work here?
0: I think the President's Intelligence Advisory Board came up with a series of very thoughtful recommendations. They had 13 odd recommendations as to ways to improve transparency in the program to increase privacy while at the same time maintaining the operational effectiveness that that Adam and I have been have been talking about. I think it does make sense to eliminate the ability to do queries for domestic crimes only. That had been a big point of contention for many years with privacy advocates. The FBI instituted new rules, as Adam referred to, that would greatly limit the circumstances under which they could query the database, not for foreign intelligence information, but just for criminal, domestic criminal purposes. And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what they need to do. And getting rid of it, I think, would go a long way to increasing confidence that the FBI is focusing on this in the right way for foreign intelligence purposes. Other provisions that are talked about in these various bills do things like limit the number of people at the FBI who can undertake these kinds of queries. Seems to make sense to me. I do like the idea of a two-person check, which had been suggested in the PIAB report. They suggested the FBI emulate the NSA in that regard before undertaking some of these queries. Additional penalties and accountability for wrongful or even careless acts seems to make sense to me. I think people should be, you know, on their toes when they're doing this kind of very sensitive work. So there's a wide range of provisions that I think there's some common ground between the judiciary bill and the hipsy bill, which they are the first to admit that they're similar provisions that overlap, not totally, of course, but the provisions that overlap between the two of them I think make a lot of sense. And I think we'll probably see Congress adopt some version of those additional protections.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't have much in the interest of time to add to that. I'll just say the conversation we should be having is, and I think those reports captured. How do you address the problems we've identified? We have not identified US person queries leading to criminal prosecutions, improper ones. In fact, seven or two, I think shows up in nine cases, all of them international terrorism cases. We haven't identified people searching 702 and then using the information to destroy the reputations of U.S. persons or leak the information to the press or to impair their employment. You solve the problem that exists now, which is generally perhaps a lax execution of the reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence standard. And that can be addressed through combination, as Glenn says, of increased oversight of the queries, better training and also increased consequences for getting it wrong.
1: Well, I'm sincerely hoping that everybody on the various committees responsible for this legislation will hear this podcast. And I'm grateful for your thoughts. I thought they were very coherent and persuasive. And I thank you both for being here.
0: Thank you. This is a very important topic. And the more people learn about it, understand the the complexities here. I think that's going to lead to a better outcome. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure.
1: Our guest tonight has been Glenn Gerstel, the former General Counsel of NSA, and Adam Hickey, the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General for National Security and now a partner at Mayor Brown. Thank you for listening to NSLT. Remember to share this episode with a friend. Of course, if you know anybody on Hipsy Sissy, share it with them. Go ahead. Or you can share it with a colleague, but discuss the issues that we've presented thoughtfully with one another, understanding the issues well and relying on hard information facts. If you had feedbacks for us, please reach out to us via social media like Facebook, threads and Twitter. Yes, we're still calling it Twitter while it lasts. Our handle is always at ABA or if you're feeling very old fashioned, email us like you did in the olden days. You can reach us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our editor and producer is Francis Burkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salido and my co-producer is Holly McMahon. Producer and writer of this podcast is me, Elisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. And help is always coming from the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association. And this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.